Thank you very much. Um, Tiffany Stone, University College. And I'm going to talk a little bit about Shakespeare and the stage and the way features about the stage um, affect the way Shakespeare writes his plays. Um, because Shakespeare was, of course, an actor as well as a playwright. So firstly, I'm going to see how we can see some actors in the plays of Shakespeare. Uh, I've shown you a picture here. It's of a man called William Kemp, and he was an, an actor who played the fool. Uh, we have this picture because William Kemp, as well as being an actor, was also rather a famous Morris dancer. And this was a book he wrote about the nine-day Morris dance he made from London to Norwich. Um, well, he was an actor for Shakespeare's company, a fool player, until about 1600. Um, at that time, he left the company seemingly in disrepute um, and angrily went off to dance a Morris over the Alps. Here uh, is Kemp featuring inside one of Shakespeare's texts. This is a little bit from Romeo and Juliet, and you can see that the stage heading, instead of saying, enter Peter, says, enter Will Kemp. And that either shows us a moment when Shakespeare is writing with Will Kemp in his mind, or at least when the prompter is deciding who to cast in that part. Well, all of Shakespeare's fools um, from the time when uh, Will Kemp was there are extremely foolish. Uh, we have um, Constable Dull, we have Dogbury, uh, Bottom in uh, Midsummer Night's Dream. But then, uh, as I say, Kemp leaves and a new fool is acquired for the company. And we also have a picture of him. This is Robert Armin. And he's a very different kind of fool, as you can see. Uh, if you look at this picture, um, you can see that he has hanging on his belt two things. One is a big sort of triangle in the front. That's his purse, which is why uh, thieves were called cut purses. On the left is his inkhorn. Uh, that's a horn which has an inkwell, um, a quill pen, and a little knife to trim the pen. If you wander around with an inkhorn, you are broadcasting to everyone that you might need to write in pen at any time, that you're a literary person. Uh, now, from 1600, when Shakespeare's company acquires this fool, suddenly all the fools uh, in Shakespeare's plays become cerebral, wise, actually more trenchant and knowing than anyone else in the company. Um, uh, so we get the wise fool in Lear, we get Feste, we get Touchstone, these wise fools. And I'm simply showing you this so that you can see that uh, Shakespeare's plays are shaped to his acting company. And that is really hardly surprising. Uh, there are other ways in which we can spot things happening in the company, even when we don't know the actors. Uh, I'll give you a little example. Here we have a moment in Cymbeline. What's happened here is that two boys have found what they think is, uh, the dead, is a dead body. In fact, it isn't, but I won't go into that now. Uh, they decide to sing a song to this, uh, uh, to, this to this person they've been looking after. But then they change their minds. They won't sing the song. They will, in fact, say it. Though now our voices have got the mannish crack, sing him to the ground as once to our mother. And the reply is, I cannot sing, I'll weep and word it with thee. So one says their voices have the mannish crack, and the other one says, I can't sing, and the second one agrees, actually, why don't we just say our song instead? What's happened here is a speedy revision because of voice breaking in the company. These two boys were clearly originally supposed to sing the song. We even have music for the song they were supposed to sing. But at some point, a revision has had to take place to deal with the fact that their voices uh, are going. So having looked at that, 
I'm now going to look more specifically at the way plays were put together and at how that affects the way that plays were written. Um, in particular, and this is something that has fascinated me by, uh, for a long, long time, I'm going to look at what texts actors were given and how that affects the way the plays were written in the first place. So what did actors learn plays from? Well, what they were given was something that looked a bit like this, and I'll explain its features to you. This is what's known as an actor's part. It's called a part because it's just part of the play. The actor doesn't have the whole play. This is the part for Orlando in a Robert Greene play called Orlando Furioso. Um, what this part consists of is everything the actor is going to say as Orlando, but nothing that will be said to or about him. You can see he has a long cue, a long line, uh, at the end of which are the last one or two or three words he's to listen out for before his next speech. So he has an entire strip of everything he's going to say, but uh, very much without context. He doesn't have the arc of the narrative, but he does have the arc of his own character's progression. And this is what actors learned from. Um, so what the actor has is um, everything he is going to say in the play, but nothing that will be said to or about him, cues aside. And there are various other things he is not given. He doesn't know whether he's in dialogue with one or several actors. He doesn't know how long he has uh, before his next cue. Will he say something immediately cued and immediately say something again? Or will he say something and 12 people will come on and do a dance and kill one another before he gets to speak again? It's not clear from this. So he, is, he does not have much narrative sense, but he has a great deal of sense of his own character. Um, so what happens when we think of plays in these terms? Well, amongst other things, we must remember that actors learned texts such as this by themselves at home. They didn't learn them uh, with the other actors present. Um, here's an example which says, The player so beateth his part to himself at home that he gives it right gesture when he comes to the scaffold or stage. Uh, I have another example of that, but I'll hop past that. Um, how did actors who had learned those separate parts so far from the narrative work together to put on a production? This pi picture helps explain. This is actually a medieval picture of a medieval play about the martyrdom of St. Apollonia. And that's St. Apollonia in the middle there, being martyred by having her teeth pulled, which is why St. Apollonia is now the patron saint of dentists. Um, around her are fellow actors, but the person I'm interested in is this one, the prompter. The prompter holds a book and a baton and indicates with his baton when the next actor should speak. And as you can see, he's something rather like a conductor, a modern conductor. And when you think, actually, of an orchestra, uh, if you imagine you're playing the bassoon in the orchestra, you're not going to be given the entire score uh, of music that you're going to play in. You're going to be given your bassoon part. And that's a little bit the way early modern performances took place. But what does this mean for Shakespeare? I'm going to show you a few examples. Here's Hamlet, a bit from Hamlet. This is the entire cued part for Ronaldo. And I'm going to look not at his cues, but at his words. Uh, this is what the actor will see. I will, my lord. My lord, I did intend it. I very well, my lord. As gaming, my lord. My lord, that would dishonour him. But my good lord. I, my lord, I would know that. Etc. The actor sees that he is to say, my lord, repeatedly. Um, this gives him rhetorical information about how to play that little stripped role. He knows that he is obsequious. 
he probably thinks he'd better say, my lord, in an amusing way. Uh, he knows that something happens in the single sentence where he doesn't say, my lord. It closes in the consequence, at friend or so, and gentleman. Um, that's when Polonius, with whom he's talking, loses his place. Ronaldo has to put him back in his place. Uh, I think this tells him to be a bit annoyed. He forgets to say, my lord. Uh, he's, he's bored with his interlocutor. Anyway, this is a part that, as you can see, helps to stage itself by rhetorical devices put in the part. Let me show you something else an actor might look for, looking again at an actor's part. We have to imagine the actor uh, turning or quite possibly unscrolling what was sometimes called his role, um, because it was handed to him, rolled up. So imagine the actor playing Olivia unscrolling this role. You don't have to read any of the words at all to see that the text moves from prose to verse halfway through this scene. Now, what's happening in the play is that Olivia is talking to Viola, and Viola is dressed as a man. And Olivia, at this moment, falls in love, uh, in this scene, falls in love with Viola. And the actor playing Olivia will see at once um, that his, it'll be a man player, uh, he, he will see at once uh, that his method of speaking changes very significantly um, halfway through this scene. And it is, of course, at the moment when he falls in love. Um, that sounds a little reductive, but you could clearly fall in love with a gesture because we have various stage directions from the time saying he falls in love as, as a thing uh, you can do. So the actor will see that what he has, what he would call this is a change of passions. Um, actors would divide their parts into passions and look for clues to see that their passions were changing. Acting at the time was sometimes called playing, but was sometimes called passionating. Um, again, I, I think I'll hop over this one, and let's go straight to this one. Um, this is a moment when an actor would, um, would read his text in one way, but when we see it in context, we'll see it in a different way. Here's the actor playing Solanio. Solanio is listening out for a cue of have my bond. And when he hears have my bond, he's going to say, it is the most impenetrable cur that ever kept with men. A cur is a dog. He's going to say something insulting. So he's listening out for have my bond. And now let me show you the bit of Merchant of Venice in which this occurs. And I'll read it out to you. But imagine you're Solanio listening out for have my bond. Jew, that's Shylock. I'll have my bond. It's the cue. It is the most impenetrable... I will not hear thee speak. I'll have my bond. It is the most impenetrable... And therefore speak no more. I'll not be made a soft and dull-eyed fool to shake the head, relent, and sigh to, and yield to Christian intercessors. Follow not. I'll have no speaking. I will have my bond. It is the most impenetrable care that ever kept with men. Um, as you can see, this text that we might read in a linear fashion actually anticipates and, in fact, demands these early interruptions. And again, we might think of a musical analogy where uh, the music sometimes demands that you go back to the beginning and, 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 uh, and play through again. So this, I'm going to suggest, is Shakespeare scripting for actors and um, playing to their strengths. Obviously, the actor playing the Jew, Shylock, will know that he speaks his cue many times. The actor playing Solanio may or may not have that information, but the actors can play games with one another um, uh, using devices such as this. And these are all ways in which plays 
that are not very collectively rehearsed. Actors tended to have one collective rehearsal before performance. Uh, these are all ways in which plays can stage themselves, although they are not very collectively rehearsed. Um, uh, sticking with The Merchant of Venice, uh, Shylock repeatedly gives out early cues. Here's, here's an example of ill luck, ill luck, is it true, is it true, four score ducats, etc. What's going to happen as a result of this is that actors, uh, the people to whom Shylock is speaking, will be continually interrupting him. And Shylock does repeatedly say that no one will listen to him, that no one hears him through. And the text stages, stages itself such that that will indeed happen. Uh, this is my last slide. I'll show you Shakespeare. I've shown you Shakespeare writing for actors, receiving that kind of text. As I say, he was a theatre man, and theatre was the element in which uh, he thought. So here he is, playing a little game with this whole idea of cues and parts. This is Beatrice saying in Much Ado, speak count, tis your cue. It's your cue, it's your moment to speak, but it's what we would call a metadramatic or a metatheatrical joke. And here he is in a Midsummer Night's Dream where he has actors putting on plays from parts. At first he has them rehearsing and being so poor in, in their rehearsal that they cannot in fact tell the difference between the part, the lines there to speak, and the cue, the lines there to listen for. Uh, Peter Quince, who's their prompter, says, you speak uh, all your part at once, cues and all. Um, well, here in the performance, the actors have finally learned the difference between cues and parts, and they're delighted by it. O wicked wall, through whom I see no bliss, cursed be thy stones for thus deceiving me. The wall, methinks, being sensible, should curse again. No, in truth, sir, he should not. Deceiving me is Thisbe's cue. She is to enter, and I am to spy her through the wall. So these are amateur actors, proud at finally understanding the nature of cued parts. Um, and that takes me back again to specific actors in Shakespeare's company. Um, I'm going to end on an epitaph from a man called Richard Burbage. Richard Burbage was Shakespeare's lead actor, the first Lear, the first Othello, the first Hamlet. Um, and this is an epitaph written when Richard Burbage died. I think it's one of the shortest epitaphs ever. Here it is. Exit Burbage. Uh, but what I like about it is it isn't just an exit, it's a cue of exit, as you can see from the long line before it. This is Burbage's final ever exit as he goes off into oblivion. Um, but this does tell us that even poets, that people at the time were very familiar with the construction and the look of the cued part. Um, and as I say, Shakespeare in particular wrote to and about those things because they were also... Uh, the very ways in which he himself had learned his texts. Thank you. <laughs>